Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. It's an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences, whether you're documenting a road trip, a vacation, keeping track of your favorite restaurants and bars, sharing a list of your city's essential museums and monuments. Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use the app to follow your friends. It's social. You can follow your family, your favorite artists, your favorite writers, your favorite musicians, whoever. And then, when building your own curations, you can pull in photos from your Instagram and your Facebook. You can pull in locations from Google Maps. And then you use tags and text to tell a story. From there, share those curations via social media. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google+. Sweet Spot is a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Also, did I say this yet? It's free. Go download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. Sweet Spot for iPhone. It's an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying to go viral. This is probably better than listening to the voices in your head. Uh, hello, how's it going? Happy holidays. I'm Brad Listy. I hope this is better than listening to the voices in your head. I don't mean to presume. I don't know what's going on in your head. My guest today is Dmitry Samarov. His latest book is called Where To. It's a memoir. It's available now from Curbside Splendor, uh, terrific independent press. And uh, he and I are going to be in conversation in just a minute. Uh, I do, I do want to share some mail. I've been getting a lot of uh, reactions from listeners regarding recent episodes, a lot of people uh, emailing me, a lot of people tweeting about the show and whatnot. Uh, regarding episode 331, my conversation with Atticus Lish. Uh, a gentleman on Twitter named Kevin Maloney says the following, uh, and Kevin's uh, handle is at Kevin R. Maloney. And uh, here's what he has to say. Chinese-speaking MMA fighter, pretty sure Atticus Lish is the James Bond of Altlet. And then another guy on Twitter named uh, Nick Repatrizoni. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it. His handle is at Nick Repatrizone. And uh, he says, loved Atticus Lish's Other People episode. He went to Harvard. Joined the Marines, influenced DeLillo's, the names, 
refused to answer some questions. What he held back made it authentic. And uh, what Nick is referring to is, you know, Atticus was a little bit evasive. He didn't want to talk about certain aspects of his past, uh, specifically his father, Gordon Lish, and their relationship, which has been troubled, but which is now on firm footing. And, you know, just a, a quick comment about that. As the host of the show, it's obviously my job to ask those questions. Like, I feel like I've got to be strong on the air, and I've got to try to anticipate what the listener is thinking and what the listener wants me to ask. I try to anticipate what's going on in your heads and then just give voice to that. But I don't push people that I interview to talk about stuff that they don't want to talk about. Uh, What I do ask of them is candor. Like, just be candid. And if candor means uh, I don't want to talk about it, that's fine. That's candid. Like, I may push a little bit on behalf of the listener, but never too far, you know. I'm not going to try to hound somebody into talking about something they're not interested in talking about. And then uh, the other thing I would say about the uh, earlier tweet is that I don't think Atticus is alt-lit. I don't even know what that is. You know, you start cat- getting in- getting into categories. But uh, Atticus strikes me as a lone wolf, if nothing else. And I know that uh, Tyrant Books has some alt-lit affiliation or whatever. They've published, like, Marie Calloway and, and so on and so forth. And uh, Gian uh, DeTrapano's friends with a lot of those uh, quote-unquote alt-lit writers. But Atticus, uh, to me, feels like something else. And his book, uh, Preparation for the Next Life, feels like uh, you know a, real, a, a big breakout book for the imprint, for Tyrant Books. It's really gotten some nice mainstream press attention, to say the least. So, uh, some more mail. A listener named Teddy writes, uh, Atticus Lish has never heard of Jonathan Franzen. Is that really possible? And... <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't hear more uh, from listeners about this. I was stunned uh, in the conversation. What Teddy is referring to is like during my conversation with Atticus, uh, we were talking. And uh, if I recall correctly, I think I made a joke about like Atticus being able to subdue Jonathan Franzen with his bare hands because, uh, you know, Atticus was into MMA fighting. And uh, he was like, I've never even heard of Jonathan Franzen. And you know what? I think he's sincere. He's not the kind of guy to be coy. Uh, That was my judgment of him anyway. And it's it's either that or he misheard me or somehow uh, Franzen's name slipped his mind. Who knows? But uh, there would be something sort of great about somebody not being aware. To me anyway. There's something sort of fun about people who don't have their ear to the ground or aren't fixated on the culture in the way that so many of us are. So uh, a bit more mail from listeners, uh, a gentleman named Will writes, dear Brad, just listen to your episode or just listen to episode 332, your conversation with William Giraldi. Giraldi seemed like a, seems like a colossal douche. You did a nice job of balancing that one out. So I guess that's one impression. Uh, I enjoyed the talk. Giraldi was a good guest. Uh, he was candid and uh, generous with his thoughts and confident in his thoughts, obviously. Um, but yeah, so that's one, I guess that's one perspective. Another listener on Twitter whose handle is at Gabriel Mason 93 says uh, about Giraldi, I'm a couple inches taller than William Giraldi and his hairline's catching up to mine. But that is one confident and arrogant mofo. So 
Yeah, I mean, Giraldi, like, the, it's for some reason, I, I'm thinking back to, like, a, an anecdote about the Beats, and it was like William Burroughs was assessing the Beats and kind of going through the uh, roster, talking about Ginsburg, talking about himself. And then when he talked about Kerouac, he said, uh, he's a capital R writer, which not all writers are. Like, I feel like I've talked to people on this show who are, are wonderful writers, whose books are incredible, but who are not capital R writers. Like they're not kind of all in and uh, fully pure in the way that some are. And I guess I feel like uh, Giraldi sort of is that way. That's how he struck me anyway. You know, he doesn't give a fuck about the internet. He probably doesn't watch any TV. He's got like a study with books. He reads like uh, Homer and shit like that. He's serious. He takes it seriously. And I kind of feel like Atticus Lish is similar in that way. But the difference, I guess, would be that Atticus does not, to the best of my knowledge, write literary criticism, whereas Giraldi does. And, uh, and you know, he got into some uh, some controversy a couple of years ago reviewing Alex Olin uh, in the New York Times. She was a guest on this program uh, right around the time of that. I think we discussed it. And uh, so Giraldi reviewed a couple of her books, which rolled out simultaneously, I think it was a novel and a short story collection, maybe. And uh, his reviews were scathing in a way that a lot of people found offensive. Like they they thought that it was over the line and there was a big uh, controversy. So Giraldi and I talk about that uh, in his episode and he's just unfazed. Or, or if he is faced, he puts on a good show. Just doesn't seem to give a shit. And has his feelings about why he shouldn't have to. So... Anyhow, appreciate the mail. If you guys want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. You can also tweet at the show and follow the show on Twitter, at otherppl. Uh, before we begin, another quick plug for the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and the Other People app. Uh, this is my way of asking for support during the holiday season. Support the show if you listen a lot. Throw down a couple bucks. It's a good, uh, it's a good way to uh, be nice. <laughs> And I would certainly appreciate it. So the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar, $9.99 a month. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Uh, or, you know, get the Other People app. The app itself is free. And then sign up for a premium account so you can stream the full archives. That's really cheap. You, you, you sign up for a year, it's 75 cents a month. So check that stuff out. Give that stuff away as gifts if you're looking for gifts for the uh, book nerd in your life. It's a gift that keeps on giving. All right. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories 
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So Dmitry Samarov is my guest. His memoir is called Where To. It's available now from Curbside Splendor. Great fun talking with him, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here he is. This is Dmitry Samarov, and his book, his memoir, once more, is called Where To. So, okay, so you're in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I live in Chicago. How long is how long you been there? Boy, uh, I first got here in uh, 1990 to, to go to the School of the Art Institute. And I graduated in 93, moved away for three years, and then have been back since 97. So over 20 years in all. Where did you, where did oh, you come to Chicago from? Uh, Boston. Uh, my, my parents live in Boston. That's where we moved to from the Soviet Union when I was seven. Okay. So you immigrated when you were, when you were seven. Mm-hmm. You have some memories of living in the Soviet Union, I would imagine. Oh, like- oh yes. Yeah, I did... Uh, more than half of first grade there, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of lingering memories for sure. Where did you guys live? In Moscow, in Moscow, right, right in the big city. And then why yeah. did you and why did you leave? You just your parents were over the 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 uh, the union. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's it's it's funny. I've actually been talking to them in the last couple of years. I'm sort of gearing up to write some sort of immigrant memoir kind of thing, but a lot of that has. You know, it depends on what I find out from them because I was just a kid when this happened. Uh, but it's it's a lot of the things uh, a lot of people talk about freedom, stuff, things like that. Big big problems. Like they got tired of basically leading two lives daily. Like because everybody who lived there basically knew that uh, everything that the government said was just a flat out lie. It was a lie that changed from day to day. Sometimes, like my father would tell me in school where, you know, he'd finish one grade and uh, the next year they'd come back and all the people that were heroes were now enemies of the state because they had fallen out of favor. So basically the, the populace was conditioned not to believe anything that came out of any official channels. So there was that, and then you got home and you had your other life with your friends and family, and it would just uh, get exhausting. Was there any fear, like, of the government, like, spying, or was were your parents dissidents in any way? Sure. No, our our, our house was raided for contraband literature uh, by the KGB, uh, and luckily they didn't find it. But, uh, yeah, because all the banned literature was passed around, uh, you know, it's called Samizdat, which means self-published, uh, sort of on bad, you know, mimeographed uh, pieces of paper that, you know, they would pass around literature, and uh, they passed from house to house and we had some of this stuff and yeah there was there was constant fear of being monitored or and being being sent away sure Jeez, yeah so i mean it's, so yeah. it's be, it's better here as much as i like to bitch and be disillusioned <laughs> about our government it's better like it's less corrupt in the united states no <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh different you know uh it's 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 different um i think uh, whether genuinely or, or, or not, uh, there is some sort of attempt here to treat the citizenry well, or there, there's an op, I don't know how to even describe it. Um, I don't know if the end result is good. It's very good. Probably not, but it's a very different thing. I, there was much less of pretense of, uh, you know, the powers that be of serving the populace. Yet at the same time, 
you know, the whole communist thing is about being of the people, for the people, you know, the, the workers, blah, 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 but uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, you know, so on, but, on the ground, right? Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing, and I, I'm no expert on this stuff, but uh, when I read about, like, I think there's a vilification of communism and socialism in America that gets to me a little bit simple-minded and react, you know, reactionary, and, and, and um, misses maybe some of the better points of these things, and um, you know, just feels kind of ideological and fear-based. Not that there's no, not that there's nothing to these oppositions, but. Um, like in a country where you have democracy and the people vote for like in a legitimate or as close to legitimate election as you can have, there's an open election and the people vote for a communist uh, government. And it's mm-hmm. not like an authoritarian state yeah. imposed upon the people by, you know, the higher ups. Uh, like it seems to me like maybe a little bit saner than like this kind of like feverish capitalist individualist <laughs> Or, you know, maybe some sort of if you could bridge the two, you know, like I, I just think that like sure. like the Karl Marx uh, idea and like wanting to empower workers and wanting there to be, um, you know, at least some uh, efforts made to uh, bridge the gulf and, and create a society that's more equitable doesn't seem like totally horrible to me. But maybe. I'm oh, crazy. no, I, I think it's a great idea. I, I don't know that it's ever been successfully uh, done anywhere, though. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I say this on a small thing. scale, sure. You know, like a, a you know, a kibbutz is basically a socialist society, right. which works because it's small and you can control. You know, uh, how can you control something the size of you know America or Russia or? Uh, you get people in power and they do what the people in power do, which is you know, slowly but surely they take more and more, right? Either money wise or control. Uh, that that seems to be. A, Unfortunately, some sort of human nature. Well, yeah, the, ki- the, the kinds people of people, do. the kinds of people. Like, yeah. This is the problem, I think, in the United States is that the kinds of people who gravitate towards politics tend to be shitty. And then they, yeah. f- they fuck the system up. And then that makes everybody in the country disillusioned. And then that prevents good people from wanting to even consider participating in politics. And so you basically seed the field to these assholes when you get to that point of cynicism. So we sort of... Oh, yeah. I will say it, it's it's always baffled me just the desire to be in power, the way that politicians. It's never crossed my mind ever in my life to want something like that. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to, I mean, I I can't imagine like the the thing about it for me is a I've already completely fucked up any chances I have with the way that I've lived my life <laughs> and the things I've said on this show. I mean, like you have well, to. Oh, you think you you won't be able to? Uh, eligible to be like you know the governor of california well i mean it depends i mean i guess like theoretically if i were to achieve some sort of fame like you know like if you're an actor like i'm sure like there's plenty i mean obviously there's plenty of shit that arnold schwarzenegger did that um i guess people didn't know about or it might have hurt his election chances but yeah i mean that stuff can get glossed over but i just wouldn't want to submit myself to that kind of scrutiny it just seems it just seems uh withering and ridiculous and (laughs) I don't like the idea of being in a profession. Uh, well, I, I should here's here's how I would say it because there is a part <laughs> of politics that fascinates me mm-hmm. um, at the linguistic level. Like I'm interested in political rhetoric and people who are masterly at it, in in kind of the same way that I'm like interested in books and people who are masterly with language. You know, it's a, you know, it's a more like acting. I mean, there's so much of it that's that oratory or performance. The performance of it can be right. Impressive. Right. But I don't like the idea of, you know, in, in politics, 
you, you know, you, you have to, uh, you have to lie. You can't give away the game. And in, in writing, um, that's what you, you, you have to give away the game and tell the truth, you know, um, hopefully, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. you know, the, the two, the two impulses are quite at odds with one another and you sort of have to pick which side you're going to be on. Well, yeah, I mean, every couple of years we get to, you know, watch this, you know, theater of the absurd that goes on that costs untold millions of dollars for billions, re- billions that I don't understand why there's any money at this point with all the technology available. They should just ban all money from campaigns. Yeah, that's I- the only chance we have of even attempting to level the field. But that's never going to happen. Seems, yeah, it just seems fucked. And you know, you talk about like, uh, you know, like. Um, Communist, like a communist or a socialist or a kibbutz-like society being enacted Ooh. on a broader scale and how that's never been done. Uh, I, I guess I agree. I mean, I, unless you're like in Bhutan where there's like a, what is it, like the happiness scale or whatever. You know? <laughs> but that, that's Bhutan. There's like 12 people there, you know, and or I don't know. I, I don't mean to belittle it. I think it's a great experiment. But it gets more complicated when you're outside of like Denmark where they have a more homogenous population. They have less mouths to feed and less... Uh, special interests and chaos, you know? It's, it's, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, my other problem, I guess, or whatever remnant of coming from the place I came from is anytime I start hearing some sort of, like, groupthink, it, it makes me very nervous. Uh, just like, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of parades or any other public <laughs> group demonstrations. Yeah. Whatever, whether, whether I support the cause or not, it, it makes me very nervous. Any protest? Yeah, like, protest? I, I, like... I, I want to run the other way. I mean, I don't. I don't want to participate at all. Like, like you mean you mean like protests? Like Occupy Wall Street freaked you out? Uh, that one less. Uh, any kind of any kind of uh, like a parade. I mean, literally a parade is. I mean, I I just think of start thinking of yeah those shots of Nazi Germany and communist Russia and all these extremes of what what these crowds mobilize together what what they're together are saying. Yeah, it, it's sort of a, a frightening sight. Well, it's like uh, it's like I never I would never want, I would never want to be a member of a club that would have me for a or right yeah a, a the, yeah the Groucho Marx thing yeah yeah yep yeah I I definitely subscribe to that philosophy and yeah I mean overall I I think I'm more comfortable and I'm sure footing talking and thinking about things that are much smaller scale much more direct like, like things that I can see with my own eyes yeah uh, and that that pertains to you know all the writing and art I've done uh, I'll have to do work on a much more human and more, I don't know, uh, intimate scale, I would say. Uh, I don't, uh, when I, I, I catch myself making, you know, broader pronouncements, it's uh, much dicier waters, I would say. I, I don't know if that's true for other people. I think that's true for me, though. Well, I mean, there's like, a, there's got to be some humility involved. It's, a, you know, it's just, it seems to me like when it comes to uh, politics, like you talked about, uh, you know, socialism or communism, like there's no evidence of it in the world having worked. I think the same thing is true for libertarianism, which is sort of like uh, it's parallel on the other side of the spectrum. Like it sounds good, uh, and, you know, to a degree. And then you're like, well, where has this ever worked where everyone's just individuals and there's no, you know, you, you sort of like try to cut away as much, indiv- you know, sense of community and shared responsibilities it, it works really well if you have a lot of money yeah right <laughs> like libertarianism is a really good deal yeah if, if you have means to not be in, not be dependent on others in that way and uh, you know most of us are well i think all of us are i just think real, I, yeah. I think it's a i think it's illusory to think that we're not interdependent but 
I guess my point is that, you know, if you look on both sides of that argument, like we just kind of ran through, it, mm-hmm. you know, the only real conclusion that I can come to is a messy one. And that is that, like, you know, the best you can hope for is like this messy system, you know, and this back and forth and this. Oh, definitely. Argument. Yeah. And, and that's and, it. You know, uh, we, I mean, here in this country, we, we certainly have socialism. Unfortunately, you know, it's for it's for huge companies that don't need it. Uh, we don't have socialism for people that do need it. <laughs> right. For people that don't earn money uh, or enough money to get by. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, this current president, for whatever faults or weaknesses he's had, the fact that he's done anything about health care at all, uh, I'll, I'll always. Uh, I'll always be grateful for because they're, they're going to try, you know, try to tear it down. The Supreme Court. Yeah, but I, I don't know if there's really any turning back now because there's millions of people that have signed up. What are they going to do? Uh, I mean, and that's only. I mean, it's only the beginning of that that process. I mean, the the only solution I could ever see is some sort of single payer model. I mean, yeah. but that that means having a society where we've decided that having health care is one of our rights, not something. That, you know, you you have to pay for and has to be tied to a job, which is the ridiculous idea. It always yeah, has been. It shouldn't be a privilege. And, it shouldn't be a privilege. No, and as somebody that's never had a full-time job, never had a salaried job, uh, I've, I've had uh, health care for one year of my adult life, and it was through, I, I was briefly married, and I had uh, health care through my ex-wife. And I've never had it before or since. Why'd you leave her, dude? Come on. <laughs> that was your shot. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I wasn't thinking ahead. I'm, I'm not a good planner. All right. Well, we'll apparently. get we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I want to I want to get back to I want to get back to your childhood, and I want I want to get back sure. to, to the move to America. Uh, mm-hmm. Your parents, what do they do in Russia? Uh, my father was a math- mathematician, and my mother was a doctor, uh, a gynecologist. Uh, and my father was able to find a find a job uh, actually while we were still waiting to get into America when we were in Italy. Uh, So the way it works, I mean, in 1978, very few people were allowed to leave the Soviet Union, but there was this trickle of uh, Soviet Jews that were allowed to leave, and part of it was some sort of deal for, uh, I believe, for grain with with the United States. So they they let some Jews out as a swap, uh, uh, and we were allowed to leave. Uh, one of the reasons uh, for that was that my father hadn't served in the military because anybody that served in the military was set to have state secrets and wasn't allowed to leave. Uh, how, did so he, we, how did he get out of that? Uh, he he uh, it was a academic exemption. He was really good at school, uh, basically. Uh, so he was allowed not to serve. Uh, yeah, pay, uh, it pays to be good at math, kids, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, at the same time, so. But, you know, the workers' paradise of the Soviet Union, Jews were only allowed to go into a couple of professions. There's quotas, you know. Basically, they flat out tell you, you know, they don't even bother. You can be top of the class. You don't you don't get to go do what you like. Uh, so he went into math because he was allowed to go into it. It wasn't his first choice. And then, uh, so... Well, what was his first choice? I think he was mostly into linguistics and literature. He's the biggest reader I've ever met. I mean, he's one of these people that has like five books going once, you know? Yeah. Uh, and my whole life, I, you know, I had that as an example. So that probably leads to eventually getting into books. 
myself, but it was a very roundabout journey to that and much, much later. But, um, yeah, so, uh, they, they decided, you know, they, they decided to leave and we left in, in 78 and, uh, uh, he, uh, was for, fortunately got somehow got a job while we were still in Italy in, in America. Uh, he sent out a resume, probably the first resume he'd ever written and got a job at a small computer company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we moved and uh, moved into a, a little apartment. Uh, that was the beginning of that. But did, uh, my did, mother, did you guys speak English? No. Uh, he had taken some lessons. I'd taken maybe a couple. Uh, but it was a big problem. So my mother wasn't able to become a doctor in America because uh, medical degrees wasn't recognized. Overseas medical degrees aren't recognized in America. Oh. So she had to start all over again, and she had a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and no English. So it just didn't happen. So she ended up doing a bunch of different jobs like social work and drifted eventually into alternative medicine, which is still what she does now. What does that mean? Like reflexology, shiatsu, massage, like all kinds of, she's basically still a doctor. Right. Just a, a different kind of doctor. That sucks, man. You have like, you, you're in this country that you want to get out of, but you're an accomplished yeah. professional and then you immigrate and you're basically down at the bottom and you just have to completely it's, rebuild. It's staggering. I mean, imagine being, they were 30, 31 years old. They're just starting their careers and everything gets taken away and you start from zero in a place that nobody knows you and you know nothing about. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's, you know, I've been talking to them the last couple of years trying to get a more accurate picture of what that was like you know, for them. Yeah. And they, and, they don't, and they don't regret it? They feel good about the move? Oh, no, no. They don't regret it at all. Uh, no. And what, and what about you? Do you have any siblings? Uh, I have two younger brothers. Uh, one was four, as I said, when we were uh, you know, emigrating, and the other one was born in America. He's much younger. Okay. He actually lives in L.A. He's only 25. Ah, okay. Same parents. They, they decided to have a kid like way, way later. He's uh, 18 and a half years younger than me. Whoa. You guys cl- yeah. Are you guys close? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's quite, you know, we live far away from each other, but yeah, uh, I just saw him. Uh, see, I was I was in LA for a day in October, part of this book tour thing, uh, and I saw him, I stayed with him. What's he doing? Yeah. Out, what's he doing out here? <laughs> so he he graduated from uh, uh, UC Santa Barbara a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and he got a job uh, with a company that does. Well, you'd have to ask him exactly what it is, but they basically advocate for Israel, which is a tricky thing to do these days, especially. Uh, he's for some reason when he was at UC Santa Barbara, he got really got in touch with his uh, Jewishness. I was going to say, I was going to ask you, like, how how Jewish uh, are you guys? Do you grow up practicing, and are you culturally do you, do you identify? Uh, well, this is the thing. So when we came. Uh, we got sort of adopted by like a local synagogue in, in the Boston area, which is a lot of what happened. So the American synagogues like to adopt Soviet Jews and uh, take them into their community, you know, et cetera. But uh, I had, I mean, personally had a pretty visceral negative reaction to the whole deal. Uh, I, I never took to it. Aside from, I, I liked learning the language, you know, and, and the, I, I seem to have some aptitude for that. So I stuck with it for longer than I probably should have because of that. So, like, I would skip grades in Hebrew school because I was good at Hebrew. You still speak it? You can still do it? No. Uh-uh. No, no. This is long, long, long in the rear view. <laughs> right, right. 
But uh, because we didn't grow up with it, and they didn't grow up, my parents didn't, you weren't allowed to practice in the Soviet Union. Oh, right. Really, yeah. in any way, shape, or form. And they tried to institute these traditions that just didn't quite take. Like, I mean, we grew up with, uh, you know, the equivalent of a Christmas tree. It was uh, in the Soviet Union, they moved it to New Year's. New Year's was the big holiday there. So it was kind of like Christmas, but without any of the Christianity. <laughs> so instead sounds, of. Sounds, uh, good. sounds good. I like this. Yeah. So instead of Santa Claus, you have Father Frost. So who's Santa Claus? <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah. want, I want him to be sort of grumpy, Father, like kind of frosty. Like, I like <laughs> uh, but so the first couple of years, we, we still had the tree and stuff until we were shamed out of it, you know, from Hebrew school. And I'm sure I, you know, I was leading the charge, telling my parents to get rid of the, you know, the Christmas tree. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's a, as much as you, you might have had like a visceral negative reaction to the dogma or to the religious experience, like coming into the country as immigrants, uh, it is nice that there's something there to provide uh, community and like connectivity for you. Like what else you got? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I never felt that ancestral or cultural connection with those people, with American Jews. I've, I always felt a, a big difference. Like, you know, the... American Jews, like, as portrayed in popular culture, like in Woody Allen movies, you know, I, I laughed at those things, but I never, I rarely recognize as, that as, like, you know, my culture, like where I'm from. Yeah. I, I never felt that. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think about Israel and all this stuff? Do you think about it? Sometimes. It, <laughs> I, it's, it's, that's, it's such a mess, that, that place is such a mess, and every side is absolutely wrong. I... Uh, I <laughs> I remember earlier when we were talking about, you know, macro big problems that are unsolvable or I don't feel qualified to to come down on one side or the other. Uh I, I've been to I've been there several times. Uh, my grandparents moved there. Oh, okay. It was their life lifelong dream. So we moved away in seventy eight and they applied to leave soon after and they weren't allowed to leave, so they became refuseniks. They were stripped of their jobs. I mean they were basically, you know, like lepers for for about 11 years until, you know, the the end of the Soviet Union. Then they were finally allowed to leave, and they moved to Israel, which was, you know, their lifelong dream. Where do they live in Israel? Uh, out, outside of Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah, my, uh, my uh, mother's sister and her family also lived there. All right. They, yeah, she actually moved there before we left for America. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's an intense place for sure. It's a place where you're, if you live there, you're pretty much forced to choose sides. It's hard not to. Is there, is there like a liberal PC, uh, Israeli movement? Like that's counter to like, Oh yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's, I mean, they have like 75 different political parties there, you know, unlike America where we have two or one and a half or whatever it is we have here, you know, they have, it's endless. You know, you, I think every Joe Schmo seems to start a party, and, you know, it's a parliamentary system, so you can have a couple of seats and have some sort of voice, I guess. Yeah. No, there, there's, uh, yeah, they, they don't speak as one. There's a lot of, it's a very active and engaged political system there. All right. Well, that's good. It just feels like, I mean, it just feels like the prevail. I mean, I guess Netanyahu's in control, and that's sort of like the... What you know, as as much as I can follow this story, like I, it seems to be the voice right now for the for the country, and it just seems uh, seems hardcore. Yeah, it 
I mean, it's a place that, uh, you know, when you're there, you feel, you know, they feel like they're uh, constantly under siege from all sides. Right. They're in a constant state of war. You know, everybody that lives there has to serve in the military. I mean, that's part of your civic duty. And that that brings uh, the whole situation home a lot in a lot clearer way than we have here, for better or for worse. You know. Sure. So you never Where, felt you never felt the pull to go over and serve time and do your no 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 no. And that's the other thing. That's the other. I mean, problem. You know. You know. I've visited there. I think four or five times, and never felt that pull like of ancestral homeland. You know, et cetera. Uh, where you know I'm I'm from Moscow and that's where I'll always be from. Uh, uh, you ever go back there? Nope, never been back. You ever the problem? No, I, I there's nothing to go back to because it's a whole different country now. I mean, I left the Soviet Union and it's now Russia, and it, there's another mess. There's a country that's been a mess for its whole history. That country, you know, it's been a shit show one way or the other <laughs> everywhere just is such a fucking mess <laughs> no but you know they they love their strong leaders so they've got their new stalin now you yeah know? yeah what is it with that they like they, <laughs> they like him like putin's got like i mean and maybe the approval uh, ratings are cooked but like you they know, probably are but no they love their strong leaders they love the czars they love and you know even during the soviet union there was always you know there's lenin there's stalin these guys that were you know like the father the strong the strong man that leads you to, to glory or what, what have and, you. And, and it's like just sort of a dick. Like I kind of feel this way about Chris, Chris Christie, like, <laughs> like, like people who support him, like there's this thing right now about it because I'm an animal person. And like, there's this law in New Jersey about like limiting the size of animal cages or like something like that's such a no brainer. And he's like, yeah. he's like against it. Like he's just like on everything. And he's like, a, and he's proud of it. And, and people love yeah. that kind of posturing. They love someone who's like, yeah, shut up. You know, like I'm I'm for caging, like you know, I'm for the cruel treatment of animals, and I'm proud of it. You know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, people like a tough guy. I don't get it. I don't get it. But anyway, no. um, okay. So you grow up in Boston. You, um, you know, I, I would assume become enculturated as an American. Uh, you know, a, a lot more quickly and easily than your folks did because you were a kid, and you know. I did, and uh, I mean, also because uh, when we came, there wasn't a, a big uh, Russian-speaking community the way there turned out to be in the late 80s. In the late 80s, there was a flood, especially to New York, Boston, these places that already had some sort of nascent, you know, immigrant communities. It's like every immigrant community, it's, they, they all, it's like moths to a flame, you know, they all go to these places where others like them are. Right. But, uh, yeah, when I was in school, it was sort of full immersion. I... I was in ESL for a year, you know, English as a second language, but uh, they stuck me in second grade uh, a year back because I knew no English. But by third grade, you know, I knew every curse word there was. That was it. it. At, at seven or eight, a kid is like a sponge. You can you absorb so much. Uh, it was easy, and I I didn't you know I spoke Russian with my parents, but no one else. And I, I mean, to this day, I have no Russian speaking friends. I just never made any. But you can still speak. Yep, I can. Although, yeah, the vocabulary is a lot, uh, a lot narrower. Right. And it, it, it stayed in that kind of um, middle school, I guess, level. Although, apparently, my accent is pretty good. But I don't. I know how to read uh, in Russian, but I don't do it. it. It's it's an effort, and I don't know how to spell anymore in Russian. Um, it's just it's a matter of practice. Yeah. I, I just 
It does, have... it does kind of suck, though, that you can be fluent in a language, but if you don't use it, it goes away. Like once you, oh, get, yeah. You would think, like, once I'm fluent, like, it's just locked, but no. You actually have no, to No, no, it. it's, it, it's like exercising like a muscle. It's like, you know, if you played, a, say, you played basketball for 20 years and then you stopped for five years. Right. You, would, you wouldn't be the same player you were five years ago, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so okay. So you, uh, you like you seem easygoing. Like you grew up in, uh, like well-adjusted kid. Did you have any like uh, dark no, periods uh, as a child? Uh, most of my childhood was really pretty dark. I would say. Uh, didn't I? I had one friend basically that I made in second grade. Uh, had a really hard time uh, fitting in in any way, uh, shape, or form. Finding my place at all. Uh, always felt like an outsider. Uh, the only thing I ever really had going was artwork. You know, I was always drawing in class and, uh, you know, I'd be doing caricatures of the teachers and stuff. And that, that got me at least a little bit of, uh, cred of some sort, but, uh, no, never felt part of it in any way. And Boston, uh, it was actually Brookline, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston. But, uh, uh, it's not a, it's not an easy place to uh, uh, to become part of if you're not from there. I found at least uh, I never felt like I was part of it. Uh, you mean you mean if you're not like you're not from the United States or if you're not from Brookline specifically? Brookline spe- or Boston specifically, but United States also. Uh, yeah, uh, it's 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 not an incredibly welcoming environment, and the the East Coast and particularly the Boston area is just an incredibly uptight, unwelcoming place to outsiders. It's, uh, I, I hear that. I, I, I hear that. Wait, I've heard that I couldn't on, wait to leave. It's, uh, <laughs> no, it's so weird. I've heard that on this show from people over and over mm-hmm. again. Uh, about yeah, Boston. I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your show, so I, I always perk up when people start talking about Boston. I, I always like hearing what people say. But, uh, yeah, I couldn't wait to leave my whole my whole time there. I couldn't wait to leave. So where'd you go? You, you get out of high school. You had, did you have shitty grades? Uh, really mediocre. Uh, I wouldn't have ever gone to college if it wasn't for art school. So I got into a bunch of art schools, but I didn't get into Cooper Union, which was my number one pick, which was in New York, and it's a free ride. And it's it's a really hard place to get into, and especially hard if you're not a New York resident. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other places I got in was Parsons, which is also in New York, and I went there uh, in the fall of 89. And I lived... What, what, kind of, pa- what kind of art were you doing? You're a painter? Yeah, yeah, painting, drawing, yeah. And you're just yeah. na- and you're just natural at this. Do you have like either of your parents give you this? No, no. I it's something I don't remember ever not doing it. I mean, they recognized it pretty early, so they sent me to classes, and uh, it's something I've always done. It's uh, it's been been my primary way to interact with the world my whole life. I can't imagine not doing it. Uh, but yeah, Parson. So they set me up. My parents found. Uh, this old guy in Brooklyn who had subsidized housing and he needed a roommate and I was his roommate and it was just, it was a bonkers situation. So I'd commute into Manhattan from Borough Park, which is a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> Every day, uh, and I'd come home. And the this... Hasidics are, I mean, I, there's a lot of Hasidics in Los Angeles and like, you don't, they don't interact. I don't feel like they interact oh, with anyone. Oh, no, 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 no. If, if you don't, if you're not, yeah, that's, you know, they live in the, 17th century or 16th century. That's yeah, a, when I first cat. when yeah, I first they're... moved when I first moved to LA, my my roommate was a girl. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we were platonic like roommates, and mm-hmm. I remember driving her around LA, kind of because she was new to the city, and I was introducing sure. her, and we 
pass by a, like a group of Hasid, you know Hasids walking around, and she was like, "Oh my God, they're Amish people here!" <laughs> right. And uh, we, yeah. la- you know, I laughed at because you know there are no Amish people in Los Angeles, but uh, no, there is kind of like an old world feel, and also like a very like closed society. Like I don't feel like uh, they they really want to be social with people who aren't, or at least intimate. no, they have their own they they have their own world. They they have no interest in in yours except for you know if there's business transaction business to be transacted other right. than that though yeah uh but there's also you know in new york in that area there was a large aging immigrant you know former soviet jewish community so they hooked me up with this old guy he wasn't religious in any way but his place was a complete pigsty uh this is the first first place i lived on my own um and he invite he'd invite his crazy ass friends over and they'd talk about things like ufos <laughs> and I was just over. I was being in my own room, just talking to the walls. I had no friends. I couldn't make any friends at Parsons. Uh, Why not? Why well, you seem uh, like you seem like a friendly guy? What the what was going on? Oh uh, well, this, it's a work in progress. It's it's taken me many many years to get to be this forthcoming. <laughs> uh, you go oh, to, yeah. You go to therapy? Nope, 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 nope. Never. <laughs> probably. I mean, all the service industry jobs probably probably helped me learn. Uh, to get better at it. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> yeah, Parsons, uh, the, the problem with Parsons was I didn't realize how much of a design school it really was. I mean, you go to Parsons to learn how to make, you know, product design or be, become get into fashion. You don't go there to become a painter. Right. Uh, and I basically ended up there because I really wanted to go to uh, Cooper Union and it was just set on New York. And New York is fun. I mean, it was fun. I, I went to a lot of a lot of shows. I went to museums. I did all this stuff, but I, I didn't make any friends at all. Uh, Just a loner. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so luckily, I knew about a month in that I needed to get out of there, that it wasn't going to end well for me <laughs> if I stayed. So luckily, the School of the Art Institute agreed to uh, take me, make, uh, let me transfer in the middle of freshman year. To, and that's so, in Chicago? Yeah. And that's how I ended up in Chicago in the in January of 1990, yeah. Oh, the, the dead of winter. Yep. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and you liked Chicago. That was a better fit. Oh, yeah. It was instantly better, although I'd never been there. Uh, I think I'd visited once just for, uh, you know, when I was visiting colleges and stuff. But, uh, and yeah. Who'd you live with in Chicago? Another crazy person? or? <laughs> uh, well, it was uh, uh, that first semester uh, I lived in a dorm uh, right downtown, uh, the school didn't have their own dorms, but they rented out a floor from uh, Roosevelt University, which is a, a, a small university in downtown Chicago, which has since gotten bigger. They actually just built a high-rise. Uh, but uh, so we had a, a there was a floor of art art institute kids in there, and that was my my one and only experience with dorm life. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, this is yeah, it's quite you know this is the thing of. Uh, Waking up at, you know, on the weekend and having you know puke in the water, you know water fountains. Just oh God, yeah, it's so disgusting. That. Just disgusting. Yeah, it's pretty horrendous. Uh, so, but we, you know, once I got a little bit of the lay of the land, uh, I, I rented an apartment uh, by myself on the north side and was joined about a uh, half a year later by my girlfriend who moved from Boston to move in with me. Well, this is somebody you dated back when you lived in Boston? We started dating, uh, uh, let's see, that summer, the summer of 90. 
and she she transferred schools to go to Columbia College in Chicago to, for film. Uh, and she moved in with me. I mean, well, she see, the house you had a moving in with me. Well, you had a girlfriend. I mean, you like you kind of paint yourself as being this like totally isolated person, but you you got a girlfriend. You, you figured that out. Well, that, I mean, she she pretty much saved me uh, during my art school years because I, I had a pretty atypical art school uh, sort of career in that I had a I was basically kind of like married. Uh, we had a home life. You know, we'd go to movies, we'd cook and stuff. Didn't go to any parties. Didn't really go to bars. Uh, I painted and went to class. Uh, came home. That 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 was my life for a lot of, uh, you know, the art school years. And you know, so, and what were you thinking? You were going to become like the next. Uh, You're going to show in museums and be like a fine artist and have a dealer and all that. Uh, I knew uh, I didn't have many illusions about actually making a living at it. Uh, I knew that I had to keep doing it, uh, but as to how you make a living at it, I, I knew that, you know the the BFA would qualify me to wait tables probably. Right. That's really what, what happened. Uh, well, uh, her and I broke up about a half year before I graduated in 93. Yeah. And uh, we kept living together, which is a horrendous thing to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, you know, I figured, well, you know, I only got a few months left in town. I'll just tough it out. And, uh, I mean, for about three months, I didn't, I lived with the lights off. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was horrendous. Was she dating? Was, was she dating other people? Like she? Oh, she immediately started seeing somebody else. Ugh. Yeah, sort of. Uh, I think initially to, to make me jealous. Right. But of course, I was the one that broke it off. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, that's the. Uh, she's got to retaliate. She can't just take. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, so I got through that and moved back to Boston because. I wanted to hang out with my little brother Max, the the one that lives in L.A. Who's 25 now. So back then he was he was just he was four, I think. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> get, I, wanted to get to know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I m- moved back in the summer of '93, and I needed a job and you know to start some sort of life. And I I looked in the want ads, and there was a there was an ad for drivers wanted, and uh, it, was, it was to become a cab driver. And, you know, luckily, a year before, I'd learned to drive. So a year, a year after I learned to drive, I became a cab driver. In Boston? Yes. All right. And how did that go? Like, that's always inter- that job has always interested me, like temperamentally, um, mm-hmm. for somebody who's got like writerly or artistic mm-hmm. leanings, or maybe even for somebody who's like super uh, introverted. It seems mm-hmm. like kind of a good job. There's nobody lording over you. You get to move around. You get There's stimulation, but there's not lots of like... Uh, onerous interact interaction. Am, am I misreading it? Oh, there, there's a lot to recommend it. Uh, yeah, for people that, that like to observe, observe. Yeah, and I'm. That's basically my main thing. Is I like watching and listening to people. Uh, it's, it's sort of my main job, I would say, in the world. Uh, I didn't know that going in either. I, I didn't. It wasn't one of those deals like uh, what's her name, uh, who became a stripper to write about it. Um, uh, yeah, no, there there are authors who do that. They do these like you know they, they go sort of like it's like embedding or like doing it for yeah, research. Right. Yeah. They, well, for one thing, I I had no uh, ambitions to to write ever. I've never even taken a writing class. I mean, I, I was always a visual artist. But what happened was uh, people would just get into the cab and unload. They would they felt the need to share. And they'd tell you about the worst day of their life or what was going on. Give me give me something like give, tell, what's a memorable one. <laughs> well, I mean, I've got you know, I've got I've written two books of these things. Uh, it's, it's always hard to call up just one thing, 
uh, well, just you know, get, like a couple. Like what? Like a, what's a what's what's? You have to have some that you go to when you talk to people. <laughs> well, you know, things would happen. You know, I, I drove I drove a prostitute once. This was really early on, and she when she first got in, uh, she she was with a college kid, and they were fighting, and they were fighting, and she kicked him out of the cab. And then told me she was cold and asked to sit up front. She was super friendly, and you know everything was going great. And I get her to where uh, her house is, and she says she asked me to wait, and she runs in uh, and disappears. And I look under my armrest, and this is where my wallet was. Oh no, two hundred dollars gone. Oh. <laughs> totally cleaned me out. That was an early lesson. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she got, About, you got school and you didn't go knock on her door you're just like fuck it I'll oh take- no 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 the, uh that that yeah that you learned really early on you don't chase people uh you know one of the occupational hazards there is that people will run you know without paying but it's, it's part of the cost of the job uh, you don't chase them because why because you could they could get violent uh you don't know what you're walking into i mean it could it, it could be an ambush uh they know where they're going you don't know you're going into a totally unfamiliar surrounding and it's just not worth it yeah i mean what's the most uh, you, a typical cab ride will be five ten twenty bucks right it's just not it's just not worth it uh so how long have you driven a cab are you still driving a cab no i quit a couple of years ago but in total i did it for 12 years wow yeah three in boston and uh nine in chicago anybody people doing drugs in your cab i had patrick hoffman oh, yeah. on the show he's a he was a cab driver i love asking mm-hmm. cab driver questions yeah so, uh in I remember uh, in Boston, I, I had a guy uh, smoke crack in the cab. Yeah, uh, yeah, just the burning smell. Is, uh, that, that's never gone away. Uh, yeah, I I have a lot of weird drug runs, uh, and the, the people that are uh, you know scoring drugs, uh, a lot of them feel badly about themselves, and they feel the need to tell the cab driver about it. Yeah, or to feel okay. And my my whole thing always was that. Uh, <laughs> You know, I know where you're going, but don't don't say it. You know, don't say it. My job is to take you where you're going. You yeah, know, at least you know, have a sober driver. At least they have a sober driver, right? They could be. Going, you don't want somebody <laughs> going to get crack and driving. You want them to have a driver. No, uh, but yeah, there's these horrible stories about you know, cab drivers that um, there was one in Chicago who uh, a drug dealer hired him, you know, to to take him around a bunch of times, and the, the police were tailing him. And they, they crossed over in, into Indiana, and that's crossing state lines, and apparently he's doing federal time now. Jesus. Or try, you know, because he's an accessory of some, of some sort. But was he, and he was a knowing accessory? Yeah. Okay. Apparently somehow they proved that he was. But, uh, yeah, I mean, to, to use a cab to, to do, uh, you know, drug trafficking is incredibly idiotic. It's like having a you know, neon sign pointing at you. It's the most conspicuous vehicle you can find. Oh, right. Well, what about, <laughs> okay, so what about, uh, you know, uh, like any sex in the cab, people doing? Oh, absolutely. Yep, many times. Uh, the, the best was, uh, I, I wrote about it in the, in the first book. The, this couple, I, I picked them up from, uh, from Wrigleyville after a Cubs loss. In Chicago. They, yeah, in Chicago. They uh, they asked to go to Union Station to take because they're taking the train out to the suburbs, and just a, a couple of minutes in, they just disappear. You know, I it was it was the old days that I still drove a uh, cab with a partition, and I didn't see them. I you know they they dove under, and I, you know I could hear them rustling around, rustling around, and then 
the guy comes back up and asks if you know if it's okay if they fool around, and uh, I just tell him that to leave the place the way they they found it, <laughs> and, and so they do. They then he pops up again and asks if I can take him all the way to the suburb Downers Grove, which is about half an hour out of the city. Damn. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, you didn't and, then, have, and there was no mess to clean up or anything like that. No, no. Uh, I, in fact, I'm, you know, I was driving along. I, I, I'm a White Sox fan, so I turned up the White Sox game, which was also on, and trying, you know, to give them as much privacy as I can. <laughs> I look in the rearview mirror and I see her foot, and it's up on the ceiling of the, you know, it's, yeah. she's just trying to get traction. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, and then, you know, I get them there, and they pop up, and they're all happy, and they just. Especially the guy was incredibly proud of himself. He just kept talking about how he just fucked in a cab. Yeah, well, He's so you know, happy. I get, uh, and I get that. Like, it's an achievement. that off the list, I guess. Right. Uh, but it's like, okay, cabs are disgusting. Like, there's not because, <laughs> but there's so many people coming in and out. There's germs, yeah. and it's like, you don't want to have, and this is what, how I feel about people who have sex in bathrooms or in an airplane. Like, that's fucking yeah. gross, man. Like, I get that it's like, oh, cool, I joined the Mile High Club, but. Um, who like you ever been in a bat like an airplane lavatory like you know who wants and who well, wants that that's that's an incredible achievement that you can actually get two people into a right. airplane bathroom right at all in any way shape or form it's, it just feels very it feels <laughs> feels very overrated to me maybe I'm just getting old but it's but like, yeah those two I mean they were totally pleasant about it they gave me a thirty dollar tip you know it was fine uh, and they were happy because they got to get away from the kids okay. they were picking up their kids were they uh, attractive no. <laughs> no, I mean average. Yeah, you know, I mean not, not hideous or anything. If you're if but you're I, if you're fucking in my cab, you better be hot. That should be that should be the rule. <laughs> it's 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 a very it was an interesting and odd uh, job. It's the, something about having the back of my head to people made me kind of part of the scenery, not less of a person. People felt less inhibited to do what and say whatever they wanted. Oh yeah, and people are drunk. I mean, I mean it's like uh, it's game on. I mean, the taxicab confessions is a thing for a reason. Right. Yeah. So, any famous people in your cab? Uh, a few actors you, here or there. Uh, you ever give uh, Oprah? You I'm, ever give Oprah Winfrey a ride? <laughs> no, but I used to pick up uh, passengers, you know, from the studio audience from her show all the time. And one time, I had these women in the cabin. We were downtown. And Stedman was walking down the street, you know, her, her life, whatever he is, boyfriend, yeah, husband, whatever what, he no is. No one knows what the fuck he is. Yeah. Arm candy. Yeah. Uh, and they, I mean, they practically wet themselves. They just couldn't believe it was squealing. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, she was, she was a big deal for quite a while uh, here. Uh, did you ever the, see the her? Most famous, did, you, did you ever see no, her? No, no, you know, I never saw her. Uh, most famous person I ever had was Lou Reed. I drove Lou Reed in the cab once. Nice. And, That's a good and one. And that was, I mean, that was... Uh, that was the one time I was totally, I mean, I, I was never the chatty cabbie. You know, I, people would, if they wanted to talk, I'd be happy to talk with them. Otherwise, I was quite happy to, to just be quiet. But I really wanted to say something to him, and I just couldn't come up with anything. But, like, at the very end, I blurted something about, like, thanks for the music. That's all right. I, but I'm pretty sure that he was happy not to have to engage. Uh, yeah, so where did he go? Where did you take him? Oh, uh, just in his hotel. It was actually, I, I knew I was picking him up because he's friends with this artist named Tony Fitzpatrick, who I drove around for a couple of years, almost like every day. And he was what? in town to do Lollapalooza. Uh, this, yeah, this was in 
uh, about 08, 09, something like that. He, he, he's one of the headliners for Lollapalooza. Uh, so Tony had, had me pick him up to take him back to his hotel. So wait, you're, you're Tony's private driver. Like he just had your card and your number and would just call you specifically. Yes. All right. And he hooked you up with a Lou Reed ride. Yeah. Lou Reed. Uh, yeah, there's a few others. Uh, uh, Penn Gillette, he's pals with, uh, some other actors, actor type people. But did, and Lou was nice. He just didn't say anything. No, he was, he was really small. That's what struck me. Yeah. He had this members only jacket and the kind of retro sneakers, you know, like, you know, they have those sneakers that are sort of 70s style sneakers, but they're in loud colors. Yeah. And he's just this little guy. I, I don't know. <laughs> wow. But yeah, I, I had totally tongue-tied for you know, 20 minutes. Coming. It's better not to say anything. Unless it happens spontaneously, it's usually just a complete disaster. Yeah. Uh, if you find yourself like rehearsing a speech, like you're in, you're, you know, it's going to be a catastrophe. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So you quit driving a cab, though. Yeah, in uh, the summer of uh, 2012. Why? Yeah. Well, uh, I started... Uh, dating this woman who uh, she actually works at the at the art at the school of the art institute but she has an administrative job and she gets up in the morning like you know most sane people and uh so i'd be getting home you know around four or five in the morning and that's about when she would be getting up so oh yeah and you know what we didn't even get to uh you were married somewhere in the middle of all this cab driving is that right uh at the very yeah yep i was uh should i back up to that yeah what happened there okay sure uh, yeah, uh, I, I married, uh, a woman that I'd had a crush on for several years and she needed, this was in, uh, 2003, she needed a roommate and I had, uh, a, a room open in the apartment I'd been living in, in Chicago. And, uh, I mean, she knew I had a crush on her, but we'd never gone on a date or anything. We had this big discussion about how it would just, you know, we're just going to be friends and then. A couple of weeks later, we weren't just friends anymore. A couple of weeks after that, we got married. Jesus. It was crazy. Yeah. Where'd you get married? <laughs> well, you know, just City Hall, eloped. Oh, okay, okay. Went to a bar afterwards and took a bu- bunch of photo booth pictures. <laughs> as, you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's a weird yeah. What'd your parents think of that? Uh, they, they ended up uh, throwing this party for us and everything, but uh, once the novelty wore off, uh, it things didn't go well in it quickly crumbled and uh, uh what was I mean, the problem just bad uh, just oh. not not enough uh you know you didn't know each other well enough no no we yeah we didn't know i mean it should have probably you know in retrospect you see all these things it should have been you know a fling uh but we you know for a brief moment you know like my crazy and her crazy met somewhere and there's a <laughs> there was an explosion we, we fought yeah we followed uh, an impulse I, I don't regret it uh it was it was quite an experience. I, I just had drinks with her in L.A. She lives in L.A. now. Okay. Yeah. So am, um, amicable and an amicable parting. Uh, it took a while. Yeah. I mean, this is I'm talking about. It's over ten years ago now. Right. So <laughs> now it's amicable. It wasn't for a while. Uh, but the other thing, uh, important thing that she brought into my life was the internet because I was one of these people that totally refused to be part of it. Uh, I was a painter. I didn't see any point in in the internet but now you do well she she's a computer programmer and she thought i should have a website and she helped build a website for me then she left and i was forced to figure out how to 
run a website, and you know I've been running my own website ever since. You sell your art? Yeah. You do. People, Try to. People buy it sometimes. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah, that's while. yeah, that's <laughs> that's the hope. Uh, <laughs> and so, okay, so you do this. Uh, you do your twelve. You, you you get married in a whirlwind. You get divorced. You cab drive for the ensuing like what 10, 11, 10, 11 years. Uh, I, I just right, right that same year when when I got married was when I went back to driving a cab in Chicago. Okay, and then twelve twelve years is a long time to drive a cab. It is. It is. <laughs> and, you, and you burned out. You eventually were like, I got to stop. I can't do this for my whole life. No. Uh, yeah, I, I got really sick of uh, sitting in a car that much. It, it wasn't healthy in a variety of ways. And but yeah, the thing that one of the things that definitely pushed me over the edge with it was having this relationship with somebody that, you know, had a day job and I wanted to see her more often and I wasn't. So what I would do was I, I just start taking more and more breaks, except that the way the cab business works is that you pay the lease whether you drive or not. They don't yeah, care. Right. Uh, so it just wasn't worth it money-wise after a while. I had to make a decision and I, I did a Kickstarter to give myself time to write the second book uh, and, and it, the it worked. The Kickstarter was successful. Well, semi-successful in that I, I way over uh, rewarded people. I mean, I, I spent the next couple of years making artwork, doing all this stuff. You know, I, I was so worried about it not working that I <laughs> stacked the whole deck totally against myself. Oh. I would never do it again. But yeah, see, I'm I, terrified of Kickstarter for that same reason. Like, I just think no one would. Like, I would start a Kickstarter. And then mm-hmm. people would be like, you know, I would realize just how little people give a shit. <laughs> it could devastate. It's not. It's. I mean, the, the scarier part is if you're successful. Uh, actually, I, I, I mean, I know countless stories of people that succeed and then are sort of slaves to it. Yeah. And the people that have given money. Well, what do you uh, mean slaves to it? They just they they promise gifts to donors and then they got to provide all that stuff, or they got to provide. And you said deadlines, like you know, in my case. Uh, one of the things that didn't happen, you know, I sort of made an estimate of when this second book would come out. Well, I couldn't find a publisher for it, and it took an extra year, you know? Yeah, how did that, that go? That's one of the problems. Uh, well, I I mean, my first book, I mean, it was a totally uh, charmed process. I mean, people would hate me for it. I, I was a pro, I mean, I, the University of Chicago Press approached me to, to do a book. Uh, I didn't even, they, they asked me to do it, basically. Damn. There's somebody there that was a fan of my writing and my artwork and thought it would make a good book. Up, up to then, uh, I had done zines and I'd done you know a blog basically, uh, but had didn't have the first clue as to how a book was put together. And I landed in this place that I mean they they published the Chicago Manual of Style. I learned all about editing, how you know how you put a book together. Everything it was like a, a crash course. And you liked it, obviously, and you and you were reading along the way. So you were like you did. You had to have some sort of literary foundation. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a house where books were prized, and val- I mean, it was yeah. Every, you know, I, I read my whole life, but it wasn't ever in any organized way, and with no ambition to to actually do it myself. Uh, yeah, driving a cab forced me into writing because I had all these experiences that I couldn't just do drawings of. I mean, I couldn't pull over and make my passenger sit for a portrait. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, keep I your re- foot there. Keep your foot there, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to. Re- I had to record it some other way. Right. Uh, and so, uh, about three years after I quit in Boston, I, I I moved back to Chicago, and it kept kind of nagging at me. Well, all these these things that had happened, 
and I made a zine, you know, at Kinko's, the old-fashioned way, cut and paste the whole nine yards. This is what, you know, years before I knew how to turn on a computer. And then it kind of it went from there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then you did a Kickstarter, and you wrote the second one, and then you had to find a publisher, and that was a pain in the ass? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I did the Kickstarter, so I had a little bit of money, a little bit of... How much did you kickstart whoop, whoop. for? How much money did you ask for? Six grand. Oh, that's not... It wasn't, you know, it's not, not a huge amount. But uh, it gave me a little bit of breathing room, and that's when I, around then, after it became successful, I decided to just walk away from the job. Uh, and see see if I could get by without it for a while, and uh, that's what I've been doing since. Like yeah, I've had odd jobs. I, I worked in a coffee shop almost a year, uh, but otherwise I've sort of survived on freelance and art sales and uh, the indulgence of my girlfriend, basically. What's the hope? <laughs> like, do you have like? Are you like a? I mean, you know, because you sort of make a deal with the devil when you pursue art, or when you know art pursues you. I mean, I don't want to sound too precious about it, but. Yeah, you sort no, it's not precious. I, I wish uh, I, I wish I didn't have to do it a lot of times, but uh, this seems to be an imperative with me. I, it's, it's the reason for me to stick around. Uh, and my my only uh, ambition or goal ever has been to make a living at it. Uh, that's about as far as I ever get, you know. But it's fucking hard, man. You know, to oh yeah, it's a nonstop hustle every day. You know, I I wake up and I have to open the computer, and it's like a, you know. It's like a dark and you know bottomless pit that you that you try to shake quarters out of, basically. <laughs> you, ever, you ever get depressed and uh, disheartened with it? Uh, I yeah, <laughs> constantly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but you have to. You certainly have to uh, grow a thicker skin and be uh, inured to rejection because you know I get rejection a dozen times a day. I would say. You ever try to get a dealer? Uh. For for the for art, yeah, you have somebody like doesn't that, isn't that how? I mean, I, I don't know anything about it, but yeah. it seems like the people who make money, like real money, selling paintings, have some dealer in New York. Yeah, uh, I've I've never found one that was a good fit. Uh, and there, I mean, in, with art, it's you know, the standards is fifty percent. They get fifty percent of any sales. I've never found one that that's even approached earning that. You know what I mean? Yeah. One one good thing about the internet is you know you cut that middleman out, but uh, getting to the people with money is then your problem. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. But I mean, yeah, that's the thing about it is that I feel like the internet has sort of opened an art market for the common buyer. You know, if if you yeah. if you can if you have a little hustle and you go out and you scour the web and you know where to look, you can find some really good art um, mm-hmm. that's affordable that you don't have to pay like yeah. you know fifty thousand dollars for for a painting or whatever. Um, right. or more but uh, you know it's it's that it's that process of kind of learning to shop and being savvy about it and then yeah the, i've always yeah I've, I've been engaged in trying to run some sort of end around around the art world most most of my adult life uh, i don't i'm i'm not a good schmoozer i don't kiss ass and i don't go to these parties where you cultivate important contacts it's it's worse than the literary word world, I'd say. Oh yeah, it's the literary it. world is full of, full of that too. But at least there, there's people that you know 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 how to speak, have some sort of intelligence. Uh, I mean, I'd much rather talk to book people than art people. And what about books? Like <laughs> as part of your future? Like, are you, is it two? Is it now like a two pronged? It is. Yeah, I, I I would you know I never would even answer to writer until my first book came out, at which point I was forced to admit that I, I suppose I was now a writer since I had a pub, I'd published a book. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and you're working yeah. on, and you're working on the immigration memoir now. 
uh, the immigration memoir, and then there's this uh, other book about Chicago, which is, will be primarily uh, art-based, mostly artwork that I want to do also, but it's all contingent on, you know, publishers, agents, all those people that will give it a push, you get push the, in one direction or another. Okay, here you go. So I figured out your career, because this is a thing. Okay. You can cool, be, finally. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> no, this is what we've been building to. You know, okay. you can be... It's one thing to you want to become like Jeff Koons or like one of these like art star multimillionaire like Jasper Johns or whatever. That that's like a needle in the haystack. You know, like you uh, you have to get lucky and you have to be you have to be really um, well connected. You either have to be like the ultimate schmoozer or you have to have somebody who is who's like operating on your behalf and so on and so yeah. forth. Um, but I think there are artists who have kind of like a local identity and are kind of local heroes and are art stars within their communities. And a city the size of Chicago, uh, you would think, could support uh, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it alone, like, just to be, like, the star of that city and to have, like, a brand and, like, you know, your paintings, like, about Chicago could become a thing. And you drove a cab in Chicago. And that's, like, yeah, a, I mean, that's, like, the, the, the place I have uh, a recognition by far more than any other, of course, is Chicago. And my work is certainly identified with the city. And it's... Plus, you were a cab driver. Like that's that's because yeah. like that kind of narrative, like people love yeah. that shit. They're like he was a cab driver who painted, and you know he saw the mm -hmm. city, he knew the streets, and you know like all that stuff. And so I would play that up, man. You know, just do Chicago paintings. Oh, uh, I do. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you just got to find, uh, you just got to figure out like who in the Chicago art world, you know, can distribute that shit. You know. Yep. Yeah, that's. I've been working on it, believe me. Uh, <laughs> but, but you, but you got to schmooze, man. You got to schmooze a little. Uh, I know. Don't you? I know. Well, that that you have. I've been trying to figure out some way that's acceptable to me, as on a personal level or ethical or whatever, in in a way that I just don't feel is complete, complete betrayal of any sort of integrity or values. Uh, right. I mean, I think the internet's been uh, helpful in that way too. Uh, it, it, I don't know. Uh, what ultimately, if, if it's a good or a bad thing, the internet, but uh, it's it's allowed me to interact with people in a distanced way, which I'm a lot more comfortable with, really. <laughs> well, I'm, glad, know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm glad that we're talking over the phone. I feel better on your behalf. Just uh... <laughs> no, but yeah, in in person with strangers, I mean, I'm I'm the guy at the party that sits and stares out the window and waits for it to be over. You know what I mean? I've, I'll still have all, all kinds of social uh i don't know anxiety you take drugs nope nothing no therapy no drugs you're but you're managing and you seem uh relatively happy but yeah i come, you know I, I come from a, a different culture where you're supposed to it's a more stoic sort of culture where you just suck it up and take it i guess like what the, so, the soviet culture or the jewish culture or both Russian, uh, Jewish, uh, I don't know if it's Jewish, uh, but yeah, I think it's more of the, the old world something. I don't know. Um, it's interesting, like, uh, so you know that writer Gary Steingart? Yes. Wrote a, he just wrote a memoir earlier this year, and uh, his family emigrated about a year after mine. It's sort of a similar trajectory. But he, in his book, totally goes whole hog into the American thing, therapy and sort of recovering from the sort of uh, brusque kind of uh, Russian way of dealing with, with the world and goes into a totally American way of, of living. I, I never quite got that far. 
uh, I've never, I've always felt like uh, I, I didn't quite arrive. Uh, I pass, I pass for an American, but I, I'm, I'll never feel, you know, from here. Right. In that sort of, uh, I don't know, in some sort of fundamental way. Uh, Chicago is as close as I've gotten to feeling like a belonging, I would you, say. And you think you're there for the long haul? I think so. I don't see any reason to leave. I mean, I like New York. Uh, I visited there for the book tour for the new book in September, and I had a lot of fun walking around and getting to know some of the uh, sort of the writer and literary people. But the prospect of going there and starting over, you know, from zero, uh, I mean, you know, unless I had, you know, a pile of cash, and even then, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've invested a lot of time and effort and uh, done a lot of work connected with this place and getting some sense of this city. Right. I would just be a tourist there, you know. Yeah, which you I, I'm you, you super must, happy with. You must, being, you must, yeah. you must know this. The city of Chicago, having driven it for that many years, like you know everything, how to get everywhere. Yeah, uh, it, that's one of the great things about the job is a cab driver will go to every neighborhood in a city in a way that almost no other person would. I mean, why would you? There's no reason. Not to not just bad neighborhoods versus good neighborhoods, but uh, anybody who lives in a major city, L.A., New York, Chicago, whatever, they have their routine and they make their own little city inside of it, yeah. which is where they visit their friends, their job, their couple of favorite bars or restaurants, whatever, the gym. And it's a little city. But for a cab driver, it's just it's a whole place. Mm. And you can't see the place any other way, really. And that was a, it was a great privilege, for sure. Well, well, it's been fun talking to you. I mean, I've seen you on Twitter, and I, uh, I know you listen to the show. I appreciate that. And... Uh, Congrats yeah. on congrats on the book. Best of luck with uh, the you know both with the art, uh, the visual art, and also with the writing. Thanks, thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on. All right, folks, there you have it. That's Dmitry Semerov. His memoir is called Where To. It's available now from Curbside Splendor. You can find Dmitry online at dmitrysamarov.com. You can check out his artwork there. Buy some artwork along with his book. What do you think about that? And uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Samarov. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about that app, the Other People app. It's free, available for your iPhone or your Android device. Go get the app. It's free. Sign up for premium. It's not free. Premium is not free, but it's cheap, and you can sign up right there within the app. Uh, or join the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Great Christmas gifts. Great Christmas gift ideas. I'm just putting those in your head. If you'd like to uh, email me the address once more letters at other ppl.com tell me what you think share your pain and you know not knowing who Jonathan Franzen is not being culturally aware <laughs> I like that I know there's got to be a persuasive argument for cultural awareness and what it brings to the table and why a person should be culturally aware there's a part of me in this day of oversaturation with regard to the media and especially internet media and the online experience. There's a part of me that thinks resistance to that, blissful ignorance of that, could be virtue. What's the debate here? What are the debate? Uh, you know, what are the two? Uh, what are the two arguments? What's up with these people who keep up with everything, who know everyone, who are all up in everyone's business on Twitter? Versus the people uh, who aren't, who don't pay attention, who don't give a shit, who are just kind of listening to their own music. 
Please remember that Heinrich Schliemann died after collapsing with an unidentified fever on the streets of Naples and that Rodin died of pulmonary congestion. Uh, that is all for now. Thanks again to Dmitry Samarov. Uh, go get his book. Thanks to you guys for listening. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, are you in transit right now? What's happening? Are you listening to this on the day of? Are you recovering? Have you been uh, day drinking for four consecutive days? What's happening? Write to me. Tell me of your excesses. All right, we're in it. It's the holidays. (laughs) 